This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to Witnesses of History for the middle of March, although only one of these reports is actually properly dated. And we are looking at hatching, matching and dispatching, starting in 1583 with John Hyun van Linschotten's report. Uh, He comes from Haarlem in uh, the Netherlands and went to Goa with the Portuguese East India fleet in 1583. This is his report on childbirth in India. The Canarans and the Carumbans are the countrymen, and as such deal with tilling the land, fishing, and such like labours. These are the most contemptible and the most miserable people of all India, and live very poorly, maintaining themselves with little meat. They dwell in little straw houses, the doors whereof are so low that men must creep in and out, Their household stuff is a mat upon the ground to sleep upon and a pit or a hole in the ground to beat their rice in with a pot or two to seethe it in and so they live and gain so much as it is a wonder. For commonly the houses are full of small children which crawl and creep about all naked until they are seven or eight years old and then they cover their privy members. When the women are ready to travel with child, they are commonly delivered when they are all alone, and their husbands in the fields, as it is fortuned upon a time, as I and some other of my friends went to walk in the fields, and into the villages where the Canarins dwell. And having thirst, I went to one of the Canarins' houses to ask some water, therewith to refresh us, and because I was very thirsty, I stooped down and thrust my head in at the door, asking for some water, where I espied a woman alone within the house, tying her cloth fast about her middle, and before her having a wooden trough, by the Portugals called Gamelo, full of water, where she stood and washed a child, whereof then she had newly been delivered without any help, which having washed, she laid it naked on the ground upon a great Indian fig leaf, and desired me to stay, and she would presently give me water. When I understood by her that she had as then newly been delivered of that child without any help, I had no desire to drink of her water, but went into another to ask water, and perceived the same woman not long after going about her house, as if there had been no such matter. And the children are brought up in that manner, clean naked, nothing done unto them, but only washed and made clean in a little cold water, and do in that sort prosper and come up as well as man could wish, or as any child within these countries can do, with all the tending they have, and live many times until they be a hundred years old without any headache or toothache or losing any of their teeth. Well, we now come to Paul Gauguin's wedding in Tahiti in 1892, as reported by Mr. Gauguin himself. Journey round the island, leaving the coast road, I plunge into a thicket that leads far into the mountains, arrive at a small valley, Several people live there and want to go on living in the old way. I move on. Arrived in Taraveo, the far end of the island, the gendarme lends me his horse and I ride along the east coast, not much frequented by Europeans. Arrived at Faon, the small district that comes before that of Etia, a native hails me. Hey, man who makes men. He knows that I'm a painter. Come and eat with us. The phrase of welcome, Hare Matabama, 
I do not need to be asked twice. His face is so gentle. I dismount from the horse. He takes it and ties it to a branch without any civility, simply and efficiently. I go into a house where several men, women and children are gathered, sitting on the ground, chatting and smoking. Where are you going, says a fine Maori woman of about 40. I'm going to Itia. What for? An idea passed through my brain. I answered, to look for a wife. Itia has plenty and pretty ones. Do you want one? Yes, if you like, I'll give you one. She's my daughter. Is she young? Aye. Is she pretty? Aye. Is she in good health? Aye. Good. Go fetch her for me. She went away for a quarter of an hour, and as they brought the Maori meal of wild bananas and some crayfish, the old woman returned, followed by a tall young girl carrying a small parcel. Through her excessively transparent dress of pink muslin, the golden skin of her shoulders and arms could be seen. Two nipples thrust out firmly from her chest. Her charming face appeared to me, different from the others I'd seen on the island up to the present, and her bushy hair was slightly crinkled. In the sunshine an orgy of chrome yellows, I found out that she was of Tonga origin. When she had sat down beside me, I asked her some questions. You aren't afraid of me? Mahita? No. Would you like to live always in my hut? Iha. You've never been ill? Aita. That was all. And my heart throbbed as impassively she laid out on the ground before me on a large banana leaf the food that was offered me. Though hungry, I ate timidly. That girl, a child of about thirteen, enchanted me and scared me. What was going on in her soul? And at this contract so hastily thought of and signed, I felt a shy hesitation about the signing. I, nearly an old man. Perhaps the mother had ordered it, with her mind on money. And yet, in that tall child, the independent pride of all that race, the serenity of a thing deserving praise. The mocking, though tender, lip showed clearly that the danger was for me and not for her. I left the hut, I will not say without fear, took my horse and mounted. The girl followed behind the mother, a man and two young women, her aunts, she said, followed also. We took the road back to Taraveo, nine kilometres from Faon. After a kilometre, I was told, Prahistai, stop here. I dismounted and entered a large hut, well kept and smelling almost of opulence, the opulence of the wealth of the earth. Pretty mats on the ground, on top of straw. A family, quite young and as gracious as could be, lived there, and the girl sat down next to her mother, whom she introduced to me. A silence, cool water, which we drank in turn like a libation, and the young mother said to me with tears in her eyes, Are you kind? When I had examined my conscience, I answered uneasily, Yes. Will you make my daughter happy? Yes. In eight days, let her come back. If she is not happy, she will leave you. A long silence. We emerged, and again I moved off on horseback. They followed behind. On the road, we met several people. Well, well, you're a vahine of a Frenchman now, are you? Be happy. Good luck. That matter of two mothers worried me. I asked the old woman who had offered me her daughter, Why did you tell me a lie? Tehurana's mother, that was my wife's name, answered, The other is also her mother, her nursing mother. We reached Taraveo. I gave the gendarme back his horse. His wife, a Frenchwoman, said to me, not indeed maliciously, but tactlessly, What, have you brought back a trollop with you? And her eyes undressed the impassive girl, now grown haughty, 
decrepitude was staring at the new flowering. The virtue of the law was breathing impurely upon the native but pure unashamedness of trust and faith. And against that so blue sky I saw with grief this dirty cloud of smoke. I felt ashamed of my race and my eyes turned away from that mud. Quickly I forgot it to gaze upon this gold which already I loved. I remember that. The family farewells took place at Taraveo, at the house of the Chinese, who there deals in everything, men and beasts. My fiancé and I took the public carriage which brought us to Mataika, 25 kilometres from there, my home. In 1945, the US troops are dispatched into Germany, and Lester Atwell reports... The Germans, letting go the Rhine, fell back in retreat, leaving roadblocks and detachments of men to engage us in delaying actions. Sometimes, during the following week, the enemy dug in to make a desperate stand, only to have large numbers of its men throw down their arms and stream towards us in surrender. After a disorganised rout, collapse and retreat, more roadblocks were thrown up, and the wounded German army fell back still further. One of the delaying actions made by the Germans, though of short duration and of obvious uselessness, stands out as one of the more ghastly episodes of the war. We were advancing down a road in convoy when a German tank drove out of a grove of trees, fired point-blank, killed two of our men and then retreated from sight again. The convoy halted and two of our rifle companies went forward and surrounded the little grove that contained, they discovered, a platoon of German soldiers in deep foxholes. The German tanks kept swivelling and firing and after a while four of our own tanks came up, each from a different direction sprayed the tiny stretch of woods with long streams of flaming gasoline. Within a few seconds the place became an inferno and the shrieks and screams of the Germans could be heard through the high curtains of fire. A few, in flames, tried to crawl through, but they were mowed down by our machine guns. Within a half hour we went on, and all that was left of the little wood was a deep bed of glowing golden coals, hideous to see and to think about in the spring sunlight. And so back to the 21st of March, 1556, and a bystander's report as Cranmer, the first Protestant Archbishop of Canterbury, was convicted of heresy under the Catholic Mary I. In prison, he was induced to write an abject recantation of Protestantism, but he confounded his enemies by publicly disavowing his recantation before he died. But that I know, for our great friendships and long-continued love, you look even of duty that I should signify to you of the truth of such things as here chanceth among us. I would not at this time have written to you the unfortunate end and doubtful tragedy of Thomas Cranmer, late Bishop of Canterbury, because I little pleasure take in beholding of such heavy sights. And when they are once overpassed, I like not to rehearse them again, but being but a renewing of my woe and doubling my grief. For although his former life and wretched end deserves a greater misery, if any greater might have chanced than chanced unto him, yet setting aside his offences to God and his country, and beholding the man without his faults, I think there was none that pitied not his cause, and bewailed not his fortune, and feared not his own chance, 
to see so noble a prelate, so grave a counsellor, of so long-continued honour, after so many dignities, in his old years to be deprived of his estate, adjudged to die, and in so painful a death, to end his life. I have no delight to increase it. Alas, it is too much of itself that ever so heavy a case should be tied to man, and man to deserve it. But to come to the matter, on Saturday last, being the 21st of March, was his day appointed to die. And because the morning was much rainy, the sermon appointed by Mr. Dr. Cole to be made at the stake was made in St. Mary's Church, whither Dr. Crammer was brought by the mayor and aldermen, and my Lord Williams, with whom came diverse gentlemen of the shire, Sir T. A. Bridges, Sir John Brown, and others. Where was prepared over against the pulpit an eye altar, a high place for him, that all the people might see him? And when he had ascended it, he kneeled down and prayed, weeping tenderly, which moved a great number to tears that had conceived an assured hope of his conversion and repentance. When praying was done, he stood up, and having leave to speak, said, Good people, I had intended indeed to desire you to pray for me, which because Mr. Doctor has desired and you have done already, I thank you most heartily for it. And now will I pray for myself as I could best devise for my own comfort and say the prayer word for word as I have here written it. And he read it standing and after kneeled down and said the Lord's Prayer and all the people on their knees devoutly praying with him. And then rising, he said, Every man desires, good people, at the time of their deaths, to give some good exhortation that others may remember after their deaths, and be the better thereby. So I beseech God grant me grace that I may speak something at this my departing, whereby God may be glorified and you edified. And now I come to the great thing that troubles my conscience more than any other thing that ever I said or did in my life, and that is the setting abroad of writings contrary to the truth, which here now I renounce and refuse, as things written with my hand contrary to the truth which I have thought in my heart, and written for fear of death and to save my life if it might be, and that is, all such bills which I have written or signed with my own hand since my degradation, wherein I have written many things untrue. And for as much as my hand offended in writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall first be punished. For if I may come to the fire, it shall be first burned. And as for the Pope, I refuse him, as Christ's enemy and Antichrist, with all his false doctrine. And here, being admonished, admonished of his recantation and dissembling, he said, Alas, my Lord, I've been a man that all my life loved plainness and have never dissembled till now against the truth, which I am most sorry for it. He added hereunto that for the sacrament he believed, as he had taught in his book against the Bishop of Winchester, and here he was suffered to speak no more. Then he was carried away, and a great number that did run to see him go so wickedly to his death ran after him, exhorting him while time was to remember himself. And one friar John, a godly and well-learned man, all the way travelled with him to reduce him. But it would not be. What they said in particular I cannot tell, but the effect appeared in the end, for at the stake he professed that he died in all such opinions as he had taught, and oft repented him of his recantation coming to the stake with a cheerful countenance and willing mind he put off his garments with haste and stood 
upright in his shirt, and a Bachelor of Divinity named Ellie of Brazennose College laboured to convert him to his former recantation with the two Spanish friars. And when the friars saw his constancy, they said in Latin to one another, Let us go from him. We ought not to be nigh him, for the devil is with him. But the bachelor in divinity was more earnest with him, unto whom he answered that, as concerning his recantation, he repented it right sore, because he knew it was against the truth. With other words more, whereby the Lord Williams cried, Make short, make short. Then the bishop took certain of his friends by the hand. But the bachelor of divinity refused to take him by the hand, and blamed all others that so did, and said he was sorry that he ever came in his company. And yet again he required him to agree to his former recantation, and the bishop answered, showing his hand, This was the hand that wrote it, and therefore it shall it suffer first punishment. Fire now being put to him, he stretched out his right hand and thrust it into the flame, and held it there a good space before the fire came to any other part of his body, where his hand was seen, to every man sensibly burning, crying with a loud voice, This hand has offended! As soon as the fire got up, he was very soon dead, never stirring or crying all the while. His patience in the torment, his courage in dying, if it had been taken either for the glory of God, the wealth of the country, or the testimony of truth, as it was for a pernicious error and subversion of true religion, I could worthily have commended for the example and matched it with the fame of any father of ancient time. But seeing that not the death but cause and quarrel thereof commendeth the sufferer. I cannot but much dispraise his obstinate stubbornness and sturdiness in dying, and especially in so evil a cause. Surely his death much grieved every man, but not after one sort. Some pitied to see his body so tormented with the fire raging upon the silly carcass that counted not of the folly, other that passed not much of the body, lamented to see him spill his soul wretchedly without redemption to be plagued forever. His friends sorrowed for love, his enemies for pity, strangers for a common kind of humanity whereby we are bound one to another. Thus I have enforced myself for your sake to discourse this heavy narration contrary to my mind, and being more than half weary, I make a short end. Wishing you a quieter life with less honour and easier death with more praise. You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matias, www.soundimage.org.